Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics... The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. When I was uh, working on the Obama campaign for president in 2007 and 2008, and then when I went to the White House, a ubiquitous presence on the scene was Jessica Yellen, who was a correspondent uh, for CNN, an incisive correspondent, always uh, always in the front lines asking tough questions. And now she's a fellow at the Institute of Politics, having taken some leave from journalism, and is sharing the uh, lessons of her experience with uh, people here. And I'm really, really pleased to have her here today. Jessica Yellen. Hi. Journalist extra, ex-journalist extraordinaire, uh, fellow at the Institute of Politics, and uh, uh, friend of mine. But I think we had to start here. We got to start with how we got to know each other, because it really was kind of a... Um, an unusual introduction. I love that you don't let this go. Okay, let's go. I love the story. We, we were... Uh, it was uh, December, end of December 2007. We were in the midst of the presidential race. I was obviously deeply involved with uh, the Obama campaign. And in the midst of this, Benazir Bhutto, the uh, uh, once and potentially future leader of Pakistan, was assassinated. Uh, and uh, the question came, I was in a scrum of reporters. I think you were one of them. Yes. Uh, 25 reporters or something there. Uh at an event about whether this didn't underscore, and I think this was the line the Clinton campaign was pushing, that Hillary's that Hillary's experience was important in order to grapple with world events like these. And uh, me doing my job, uh, I responded and said, I think it's judgment that's important. And uh, had people exercised better judgment, we would have not been... Uh, distracted by the war in Iraq, and we would have focused here, and maybe there wouldn't be the the, uh, the flourishing uh, terrorist networks that uh, apparently resulted in Benazir Bhutto's death. You re- yes. reported that I was... Now, you should say what you reported, because I don't want to mischaracterize what you reported. So I... I- deliberately did not pull the nexus research on this. So I'm going to characterize my experience of this. This is good. We can both live with our memories. Because I feel like this is a Rashomon, and <laughs> you had yours, and I. we can make a play of it someday. It could tell the story of that campaign. Uh, I, as I recall, the experience was you that there was a the phraseology was essentially that Hillary Clinton's, the policies Hillary Clinton had endorsed, created an environment 
in which these facts, this was allowed to arise. Um, what ended up happening was what I think you said may have not been the full intention. Perhaps it wasn't as artfully phrased as if we could both go back and do it again, you might've done it. And, um, it became a mini tempest in a teapot that day that died for almost everybody except for you and Bill Clinton. And I would say that there are a lot of people I pissed off that year. I don't know that Bill Clinton <laughs> has forgiven me for asking him whether he injected racial politics into this campaign, which is what I asked him in South Carolina. Oh, yeah. He didn't like that at all. He didn't like that. It became big news. You remember, shame on you. Shame on you. I didn't realize you were the perpetrator. That was me. Oh, they didn't want to let me do an interview with him that day. And so I snuck into the rope line and I asked him a question that to this day I sort of cannot believe I asked. Um, I said, you know, your campaign manager, Mr. President, your your South Carolina uh, director, Dick Harputlian, said that he hasn't seen a Democrat inject racial politics into a primary this way since Lee Atwater was alive. And Clinton did a double take. He said, excuse me, Lee Atwater? Yeah, right. I mean, you know, for a Southerner who grew up and views himself as uh, kind of a progressive on the race issue and lived through all of that, Lee Atwater is uh, sort of a dark, dark figure because he was viewed as playing race card, the race card. He's now deceased, but as a Republican operative, was very instrumental in moving the South into the Republican column and using race. To divide the electorate, right? Right, which he himself, I guess, acknowledged toward the end of his life. So Bill Clinton didn't react well to that. No, Bill Clinton got, you know, heated and really took umbrage and became very defensive. But, you know, for me... It was really the first time a reporter had said race in that sort of way. Are you being racially divisive? And I had been got, gotten a ton of calls from former Clinton supporters, from former Clinton operatives before that, saying we're really upset about this, that he's doing this in this way. And so I felt justified asking the question. I felt that it was legitimate because it's what a lot of people were saying privately. But I took a risk saying it out loud. And when it exploded, I, know, I didn't know which way that was going to cut. Did you, uh, you were an intern uh, in the Clinton White House, uh, were you not? Yeah. So uh, when was that? That was, were you in college at the time? Right after I graduated college, it was 1993, and I had two offers. I could either go to New York and learn to write on a magazine, and then I got an internship at the White House. And my dad, who'd always been into politics and thought, this is a gem of an opportunity, you got to go to the White House. So I did what my parents wanted, and my first assignment was the healthcare war room. That's when they were, you remember, first trying healthcare. And I remember my job was to write briefings on state and local issues in healthcare. So if he's going to a small town in Illinois, what are the local issues there for healthcare? Uh, And I remember I got this briefing, this, this note about what I had to detail, and I went up to one of my bosses and I said, what is HMO? Because I had no clue. So, you know, I was really wet behind the ears at that time. Did you did you have aspirations at that time to become a journalist or never? Did that... Never. I my my dad was um JFK's personal page at the Democratic Convention. And he was just a child of Camelot. Like his eyes lit up anytime you talked about that kind of um the idea of doing well while doing good. And you he, grew up in Los Angeles. I did, mm-hmm. Los Angeles. And um, they were very, my parents were really involved in the civic community of, of LA and California and this real commitment to contributing to your community. And my dad was a frustrated politician. He w- wanted to be mayor of LA. 
So the idea was I was supposed to go into politics. But then I went to work in the White House, and I was so sort of taken aback by how politics worked. You know, I was fresh out of college, so I didn't know what to expect. I decided— well, In what way? And I'm going to gloss over the whole intern thing. <laughs> in, in what way were you taken aback? Um, two things. I was really surprised that the people who were political, who did strategy, were really influential. And they had the closest access to the president. Um, but the people who were deep thinkers and did policy and worked on ideas, they had the fourth floor offices across the street in the big old executive office building. Um, and I thought ideas seem to not be as important here as political maneuvering. Um, and the other thing that re- really upset me at that moment was uh, I worked for a while on the announcement for the welfare reform announcement when Bill Clinton were going to make welfare change welfare as we know it, whatever. Uh, And he used the word illegitimate and wedlock in his announcement, in his speech. And I thought, why is this man describing the children of single mothers as illegitimate? This is not the person I want to be working for. This is not why I'm spending my date. Like, I got very upset. Did you say anything to anybody? I really felt that it was an environment that was like an uncool. It almost felt as though it's uncool to be passionate about policy and ideas. That it was hmm. childlike or not seen as... Don't you think Bill... I mean, I think of Bill Clinton as being passionate about policy 100%. and ideas. I happen to think if I had gotten access to the president himself and had this conversation, it would have been incredibly productive. And I now know that his welfare reform policy is actually proven to be pretty very effective. Um, and the very people I was worried that it would hurt, which are single mothers and children, actually benefited and they got a lot of what they needed. But, you know, I was... 22. I was idealistic and I cared about language. Language matters, you know, that whole thing. And this just sent me off the rails. I sh- I want to I want to get to how you got to journalism. I just want to close the loop on the Benazir oh Bhutto story <laughs> because I, what I wanted to ask you about was um to me it was just a sort of a parable of campaign reporting and campaign uh, things flying at at warp speed and they seem important for about 10 seconds and um come up 10 years later exactly (laughs) when when aggrieved uh sources and but anyway um but uh what what was your experience as a reporter covering politics did you find it did you find that element of it difficult or i found all of political coverage uh sometimes exhilarating and sometimes incredibly frustrating. Uh, I got into it because... Sounds like politics itself. Yes, that too. I had this sort of... um, sort of crystallizing experience when I worked in the Clinton White House. I There was a TV in the corner of the room I worked in, and it was one TV at that time. It's only CNN, yeah. you know, it was 24 hours. It hung on fish wire. And I remember there were two things that could stop everybody in the West Wing, just make silence. One was a president walking into your workspace, and the other was CNN reporting a story on the White House, and everybody just stopped still. And I was always, I found myself to be frustrated often when they would be covering, for example, David Watkins took a helicopter to go uh, golfing. And this is a big scandal because one of the president's aides is using taxpayer helicopters to golf. But there were all these important issues we were working on inside the White House that weren't being covered. And I thought, if I were one of those reporters, I would cover the real stuff. I would cover the stuff that matters. And I want to do that. Because everybody in the White House listens to those reporters and it matters. 
So I decided I wanted to be one of them. And did you end up doing what you set out to do? <laughs> so I ended up, I mean, it took me a long time to get to the White House. I went through local news and I had a lot of those experiences first. That was the moment, though, in the White House when you, that was what triggered your notion that maybe, maybe I should go and do this the right way. Is yes. That- yeah. Because I also, when they reported what they reported, it actually impacted policy. It impacted, you know, oh, we have, everybody in the White House would then shift a little. Uh, we have to pay attention to what's happening in the news. And I thought it's such an, a powerful microphone. It's such a powerful agent um, to sort of wear the, focus the spotlight on issues that matter. I want to focus the spotlight where I think it really matters. And for me, that was people who are sort of not, who don't naturally have access to power. And in particular, I cared about single women and, you know, children who were growing up in poverty, that kind of thing, which it turns out is not great. TV fodder, <laughs> I've since discovered. Yeah. And, you know, I ended up, I have my, I've had my moments in my career when I've gotten to do those stories that I thought mattered. But yeah, you end up doing in the maw of, you know, the rhetorical fights every day. So just um, tell me what your rise up to this point was where you could draw these conclusions. Yeah, I mean, uh, how was the local TV experience? And I'd spent two and a half years on nights at the Tribune covering fires and murders. Did and you work the overnight, the lobster the over- shift? Yes, I did, yeah. You'd go I did. in? I'd go in at six and I'd work till two. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, it was all catastrophes and good stuff happens then as in I had a great it was the greatest education that I could ever have I learned so much about the city Mm -hmm. I learned so much about how things worked and didn't work I also learned that uh, I I watched firefighters uh, you know in 20 below with icicles dripping hanging from their hats racing into burning buildings to save people I watched police officers both doing good and bad things but uh, you know heroic things at times. Um, you know, I saw a lot of things that I wouldn't otherwise have uh, have seen. And was was that your experience as a young reporter? A hundred percent. I mean, I grew up in West Los Angeles, you know, and I, uh, from a fairly, you know, comf- very comfortable, fr- privileged background. And I ended up in Orlando, Florida as a one-man band reporter, which means I carried my own camera. I would shoot all my own interviews Uh, And I would even shoot the stand-up, the part where the reporter is on camera. And that was always, I mean, it was a comedy routine. Just You would have to set the camera down, lock it in place, hit record, then run in front of the camera, do your little bop, bop, bop. It sounds like a Marx Brothers (laughs) movie. It was a disaster always. Uh, And people are confused when you're trying to conduct an interview as both the reporter and the camera person. And I'm not a particularly tall. I mean, it was just very <laughs> awkward, you know, staring up at people. I wasn't going to erase that. <laughs> not a tall person. Yes. Camera almost bigger than I am. Uh, but like you, I had that experience. Or I, I was always surprised. People often invited me in for interviews after, for example, a child had died. And to me, that was, I mean, it's such an intimate per- moment to come into someone's life. And in many of these local markets, I found that People, instead of perceiving the media as an intrusion and, you know, were hornets that should get out of their way, it was a way of honoring yeah. and commemorating a person. Yeah, and I think also sometimes therapeutic to, to, to share and, stories about the people that they've lost. I always found it very hard, though, to intrude on these very 
horrific personal moments. A hundred percent, because you feel conflicted because, you know, you I could sense they want me there and they want to tell this story, but it also feels voyeuristic on my part. Yeah. And I almost want to tell them, don't let us do this. Yeah. But, you know, it's it's often... Actually, maybe it was that. It was therapy for them. Yeah, yeah. Or maybe I just tell myself yeah, that right? we justify to uh, excuse the fact that we're intruding on their lives. Mm-hmm. But So how long did you do that? And when did you start making the transition to politics, to government? So when I got into local news, I would always say, I want to cover politics. I mean, this is whenever I talk to young people about yeah, we've advice. We've lived parallel lives. <laughs> almost. Uh, Mine in a different era. I would, yes, I would love to have the impact you've had, so maybe someday. Uh, I found you're on the Axe Files. Come on, okay, take it back. You're right, big time. I uh, I would always say my advice to younger people is always say what you want, be very clear, and then do what they ask you to do with absolute diligence and commitment. And so I, you know, was covering in Orlando sinkholes and, you know, triple murders and Terry Schiavo and you name it, whatever was going on that's horrific and gory, I was there. Uh, But then I would say I'd like to cover politics. So any chance I got, I would do that. And when I went to, from Orlando, I went to Tampa, which was a big leap to a bigger market. And, you know, I had a cameraman and someone edited tape for me. So you didn't have to run around like the Marx Brothers (laughs) thing. It was big time. Yeah. I started to become their political reporter, and there was a Senate race that year in Florida, and I ended up in Democratic. They said, why don't you go to Tallahassee to cover Ben Nelson's campaign? He's he's the running for Democrat for Senate this year. Great. So I was in Democratic headquarters in Tallahassee, Florida in the year 2000. And that night, I was there when they declared Gore the president, and then they declared Bush the president, and then we didn't know. And I went to bed, and I got a page at like 4 a.m. saying, Yellen, get to the Secretary of State's office. And I ended up staying in Tallahassee, Florida for 35 days as the recount broke, and I covered it all. Mm-hmm. And that for Felt me— about an education. It was such—and that for was a career highlight. I mean, it was, first of all, it was like time-lapse photography. I'm standing there and all of a sudden there's Linda Douglas and there's Cokie Roberts and there are all these people that had been my heroes my whole life and they're here covering the same story I am. And I also learned that I had a real affinity at that time for translating complex ideas clearly on air. So I would get the lawsuit, you know, the court decisions, and I was good at reading them and processing them and then conveying to the viewers basically the the essence of what had happened. And I really enjoyed, I enjoyed that. Before we leave your Florida experience, Jeb Bush was governor at the time you were covering uh, Florida. You mentioned Shivo. That was a case that was big in his tenure and so on. What were your observations of him back then? And and how do they square with what you see today? That's interesting. You know, my recollection was he, uh, he was very present in Florida. You know, he made, he, he made himself um, visibly present, but he really chafed at taking questions. Um, there was a level of discomfort with being um, not even challenged, but engaged by reporters in a sense that, listen, I'm going to handle this and then it'll be explained to you. And I kind of have seen that in these debates where he's, it's almost as though he just doesn't want to engage this kind of a process. And th- I think he's a bright person who's devoted to policy and he cares about certain issues. But I think that the way we, you know, our media is constructed where you have to open yourself up and and 
take the questions and take your shots and push back. It just it doesn't come naturally to him. Yeah, well, I mean, a little bit of the circus that we talked about at the beginning um, is very much part of that process. And I have to tell you, I worked for a guy in Barack Obama who wasn't particularly comfortable with that element of it either. I think he was better at it than... But wouldn't you say he didn't like... Maybe he doesn't like it, but he's good at it. Yes, I would say that. And he and he knew he, he had to. I think he's an easier... You know, he has an easier way. Uh, but he shared, I think, that same sense of uh, the absurd in right. thinking about the process. And I suspect, without knowing... Uh, although the Jeb Bush was at the IOP and talked a little bit about this before he was thinking of running for president, before at least he said he was thinking of running for president, uh, that you know he doesn't he doesn't necessarily tolerate the the the, the, the absurdity of the right. the process, and you kind of have to embrace it to survive it. Um, so where do you think this all goes with him? How is he going? Do you think he's improving at this? Will he? I don't. I think he seems very displeased with his situation. He doesn't, it's not a person who communicates joy with the process. And, um, you know, like Donald Trump, (laughs) I mean, you know, yeah, he loves the show. And that's part of what Trump understands is it's it is reality TV. I mean, I call what we're doing sometimes reality news. And, you know, we cast in the news often the extremes because they're good characters. Uh, But the person who takes the centrist position is sort of dull. So we don't give them as much airtime. Trump gets that. So he's always, you know, he doesn't only like say yeah, things. He doesn't like, paint in pallid colors. No. And he also is always giving you a cliffhanger. Stay tuned because next, you know, at this debate, I'll. And even you saw it with his Megyn Kelly fight right after a big debate. He picks a fight so he stays in the news. It's right. a reality TV convention. Well, and also I think to offset any negatives from the debate, he right. also he introduced his tax plan right after the, the the second debate when he kind of flagged at the end of that debate. It's just I, he's got an incredible sense of uh, theater. You know, I always uh, talk about the fact that he says his childhood hero was Flo Ziegfeld of the Ziegfeld Follies. <laughs> and he really, he talks about himself as an entertainer. Mm-hmm. And he fully embraces that element of this process. I don't get the sense that Jeb Bush does. No, I agree. And I also think the thing that Jeb Bush could do to diffuse this, he needs to use more humor. If he could sort of be a little more wry and light about it through humor, it would really benefit him. And is he capable of that? You know what? If he could just deliver well-written lines that someone else would give him, it might be enough. But it's just not where he's headed right now. No, and he also uh, is a guy who, in order to deliver well-written lines, you have to understand that you're delivering well-written lines and accept that that's part of the deal. It's, again, embracing the process with all of its demands. Rubio is better at that, Mm -hmm. at at the show Did you know him back then? I you know, he was in I, – I knew of him. I didn't really interact with him. Uh, but he was a star always in Florida. Mm-hmm. Because of the way he presented himself. Yeah. So you uh, – so after the recount, you went to – is that when you – where did you go from there? You after went to the, the recount, network, right? I went to MSNBC. I was – uh, the overnight anchor at MSNBC. I worked your shift, the lobster shift. Yes. So I'd go in at... Probably oh, different at MSNBC. Yeah. yeah. I'd go in at 11 at night, or I'd be on at 11 at night, and I'd deliver, um, what was it, your headlines on the half hour. And it was... And then I was... But the main job was to be there and available if news, major news broke. So it was just about sitting around all night, hoping something bad happened somewhere. <laughs> Which is sort of what news is these and, days. Yeah, things... and. 
probably events cooperated uh, more they than did, a little. You know, my audition for MSNBC was I had to go in and, the t- and they make the teleprompter crash so that you have to vamp on your own to see if you can handle with no script. And then they start reading in your ear some breaking news event. And could you do this? Well, I had been at Central Florida News 13 where I did absolutely everything on my own. I was a, you know, I'd been doing that for a year. So I managed to handle that. Uh, and that's a lot of what the overnight was sometimes. Uh-huh. And then you moved to ABC? From MS, I did go to ABC where I also did this overnight gig. So I'd go in on Fridays overnight and then Saturday overnight, not on air, just sitting around in case news happened so that they'd have an anchor in position. And then Monday through Friday, I worked th- for Good Morning America. So I worked seven days a week. And during the week... What'd you do on the eighth day? <laughs> I was praying for one so I could sleep. Uh-huh. It never materialized. Yeah. But they had me... You know, I'd cover... Basically, if someone was getting axe murdered or a celebrity was in trouble, it was all me. And I did that for a year. But every time I had a chance to talk to the executives, I'd say, my goal is to be White House correspondent. And they'd be saying, oh, that's so sweet. That's cute. Jason Williams just shot his uh, bodyguard. Why don't you just go cover that? And I'd come back and I'd say... They said, you did a good job on that. You're very thorough. I'd say, thank you. My goal is to cover the White House. Go cover the Martha Stewart trial. No problem. And then one day, the ABC White House correspondent, who was Kate Snow, got promoted to become the Good Morning America weekend anchor, and they had this opening. And I think they're sitting around, and they said, you know, Jessica Yellen is a broken record about covering the White House. Why don't we just send her there to fill the gap? So they let me go, and they was told, you're going for two weeks. This is not your job. Do not get excited. Don't get your expectations out of whack. Just fill in. And then two weeks became a month, and a month became two. Now the rest, as they say, yeah. was... And you uh, tell me what... I always had this sense, as a former journalist, that the White House was a great uh, beat to have on your resume, uh, but a really tough beat to cover, because you were so reliant on essentially feedings from the White House, and it was hard to do enterprise reporting uh, when you're chained to that room waiting for official pronouncements and so on. Uh, but maybe I, maybe I missed something. No, it's the reality of White House coverage is so different from what I thought of when I was that 23-year-old sitting in the Clinton White House. Um, and so a large part of it is you just have to be there. For, for us, now that we have email and Twitter and you can get so much information on the phone, uh, you have to be present not so much to get the downloads, but so that you can just be in front of the, that camera. I mean, on 24-hour news, you're very chained, chained to the camera sometimes. Uh, and it is frustrating that you can't go out and do a story about some policy and how it's impacting real people. And you can't, but you can't even really move around that building very readily. A hundred percent. I mean, I got a moment to cover Capitol Hill, and that's amazing. You're just walking into rooms with the member you're covering. You crash into the Speaker of the House, who then takes you in a different direction. And or six people who are thinking of running for Speaker of the House. These <laughs> that's days, the but, case, maybe. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, that could could get frustrating. But it's on the other hand, it's the White House. You have an amazing. Every so often you're given these moments of oxygen where you can ask a question that becomes meaningful. Uh, For me, I loved going to the policy briefings, even though most of what I learned I couldn't get on air. I just personally loved it. Why didn't you become a print reporter? I should have. When did you determine that? (laughs) I probably should have. Late in the game here. You know, people told me that at the time, uh, people told me that print's dying. You got to go on TV if you want a future. Um, well, as it turns out, that wasn't so accurate. 
Um, but now I'm I'm writing now. So that's fun. Although I'm writing a novel, it's different. And um, I hope to incorporate some more reporting, print reporting. See, people in government and politics would say they've read a lot of fiction and on, on news sites. So. <laughs> but I'm bum. Yes, but um, so you, you went from you went from ABC to CNN. Uh huh. And I should say as a disclaimer that I'm a contributor to CNN now. They are so, lucky to have you. Well, I appreciate it. Yeah, and I'm enjoying it there. But I wasn't a correspondent, so or I'm not a correspondent. So tell tell me about that experience because that really is all news all the time. I mean, you're and you're filling on ABC. They've got programming all day. They don't have newscasts right. all day. You're, you're you're filling in all day long. Well, it's a different kind of schedule and pacing and lifestyle. So uh, I remember I had this experience in covering uh, George W. Bush, and I was still at ABC at the time, and he went, we went overseas, and he was in Tbilisi, Georgia, and he danced a jig. And it was very funny video. You could probably, if you pulled it up, you would remember it because you saw it so much. But I remember... At the CNN, they had so much, my, my colleagues at CNN had so much airtime that they could cover the jig and they could cover the policy and they could cover the meetings. They could go out and do it all. And I wanted a chance to be able to cover more of what was happening. And I also remembered that when I was at every network I've ever been at, CNN is always on. And it's almost the assignment editor for other news channels. Mm-hmm. And, you know... Some people at network still like sort of sniff at cable, but I just saw how influential CNN was and still is. And so I, I thought this would be great if I could be there. So I, I went right before the 2007 election. to I was the Capitol Hill correspondent, but I was brand new and I was going to cover the election. And they said, since you're new, you don't get one of the big candidates. So we're going to give you this guy who's not going to win, Barack Obama. Yeah. And <laughs> that's how, you know, that's how I got my break. I, I was taken off nights for a few weeks to cover this woman, Jane Byrne, who was running for mayor of Chicago. And they said she's got no chance. <laughs> she ended up, it snowed for 40 days. People were really pissed off. She ended up getting elected mayor, toppling the machine. And I got a guy on the political desk, went over to work for her, and I got a job on the political desk. So sometimes those throwaway assignments turn out pretty well. You never know how it'll break. Yeah. And I remember being in Iowa, it was my first time, and I would go, I'd call back to home base and say, you know, I think there's something happening here with this guy. You know, these farmers are walking in, being dragged by their kids to these Obama rallies, and by the end, they're doing the wave. And folks would say, oh, that's just Iowa. They're really into politics there. I'm like, I think this is different. Yeah. Yeah, it was, a, it was a, as we say in the business, a good yarn. Yes. The uh, Obama campaign. So... And, and you cover the entire campaign, um, and then, uh, but uh, ultimately, what happened with you and news, and what conclusions did you uh, draw from that experience that leads you to be a novelist? <laughs> so I always wanted to be, as I said, White House correspondent, and then I wanted to be chief White House correspondent, and then I got that chance, and I did that for uh, two years, but I covered the White House on and off for almost ten. Uh, and I just felt that I had, you know, sort of, I could have stayed there for a really long time and kept covering these issues. Um, or I could try to exercise different parts of my skill set. And I wanted to explore my ability to write and creativity and think about new things we could be doing in news, because I really do think this is a moment when there's a shift 
And I wanted to just get some rest and, you know, down, regroup so that I could try to figure out what's coming next. So one of the things that you did uh, uh, when you were uh, in journalism, broadcast journalism, was a, a piece on uh, political women, women in politics, and it was an award-winning uh bit of work. What did you learn about, and this is particularly germane now, we have Hillary Clinton running for president again. What did you learn about women in politics, how they are received, how uh, they have to, uh, what, what, what kind of adaptations they have to make that aren't asked of men? I mean, what exactly I did think, you learn that is germane to what we're doing today? I think that it it is still um, an uphill battle for women in public life in ways that are sort of baffling in this day and age. Um, The thing that really strikes me about the way Hillary Clinton is covered is uh, sort of how much there's talk about her voice. Uh, There's a lot of her, she's so, you know, people will say in sort of pundits, she's hard to listen to. Um, There's, she's sort of shrill. There's this, um, is she too tough? Does she sound off-putting? And some of that is, you know, what you'd say of any candidate because they do have to be likable. But there's this way in which women who are assertive and confident are perceived as um, un- unappealing or, shall I say, unlikable. <laughs> yeah. um, I mean, and, we, we go ahead. No, and it makes it very challenging because women, you know, there's this – any woman who's been – a in the professional workplace knows that you're it's much easier to communicate if you sort of temper whatever you say with I you know I'll defer to you on this but it's it's my opinion that x but whatever you think is best or um I, I just think x but you know that's just my point of view and that's not a how men communicate and b not what you want from your commander in chief yeah no it's it's very challenging when you're running for president and Hillary Clinton's experienced that uh, Carly Fiorina has experienced that to some degree. And I think it goes to a lot of the different way. I bring it up because it goes to the different way we perceive women fundamentally, um, that we have a very hard time as a culture with women who are comfortable with power and that it's just threatening. And you need your commander-in-chief to be comfortable with power, but then that becomes that makes them less appealing. Do you think that will change if there is a woman president, if Hillary becomes president, someone else becomes president? Will, will, will people become more comfortable with that notion? I think so. And I also think, you know, an, an example is uh, there was just a piece in Politico talking about the fact that this press corps, the Hillary Clinton press corps, is more female than any press corps before. And it was sort of treated as, how surprising. What a funny coincidence. It's not a funny coincidence. It's because news organizations say, wow, it's, we look bad if we have a man or only men on a female candidate. So let's find some women. We can, and that's created more opportunities for women in politics. Do you think at the risk of asking what may, may seem say an inappropriate okay. question, but do you think that being a woman gives an insight that is valuable in terms of of covering a, a woman candidate? I think, uh, sure. I mean, the, the same, yeah, sure. But it's not, it, it's, it's not necessary. It's not essential. Uh, just like if you're covering a candidate who's from your hometown, you have more insight into their, the milieu in which they grew up. Um, so yeah, we have certain kind of insight or shared experiences and it is very helpful. Uh, 
but I don't think it's ne- it's not a one to one. I I think that what I'm saying is though Hillary has created this opportunity for other women. It's almost a shame factor, you know. We we just it's kind of embarrassing if our whole press corps is male. Mm-hmm. Um and and if she's able to be strong and confident the way she was in this last debate, and she is. Uh, it gives other women permission to do the same. I keep saying that what Hillary Clinton needs to do is position herself as the smartest girl in class. You don't always like the smartest girl in class. Sometimes you find her very annoying and you don't want to go to the party with her. But if she's helping you ace your test, you really want her. And this country's facing huge tests, so we want this woman on our side. If she can be that for women, professional women, comfortable being the smartest girl in the room, smartest person in the room, um, and okay with the fact that people don't like her for it, that gives women permission to do the same. When Obama was running, we were always conscious of the fact, I know he was, that uh, he was the first African-American candidate and that people, uh, others would look at him and project. Yeah. Uh, and that, and I think there was a sense that if he failed, that that failure would be felt. Uh, so when she uh, stumbles or when she has... Uh, you know, issues r- yeah. related to things that she said that don't add up or whatever it is, the, the, the trust factor yeah. or so on. Um, how, do, 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 how do women process that? Do they say? Well, it is interesting. I mean, I'll tell you, my mother used to get mad at me when I would report something negative about Hillary Clinton. Uh, I mean, she, I, would, I was covering President Obama at the time and, or then candidate Obama, and I'd get emails that said things like, if it weren't for Hillary Clinton and me, you'd be a secretary today. Um, not that there's anything wrong with being a secretary, but I wanted to be a reporter. So uh, sh- so there are people, especially of my mother's generation, who feel that Hillary's success is their success. And so when she stumbles, they all catch their breath. Uh, but I feel like next generation women or millennial women don't feel that way. And uh, they're judging her the way we judge all candidates and, and would love her to succeed. But you almost wish she that the Clinton team would take that pressure off themselves, just run a campaign. Um, and, you know, look at Carly Fiorina. She's doing it pretty effectively. You know, you, you sort of hinted at this earlier when you talked about the things that you can get on the air and the things that you can't get on the air. And, you know, we see uh, stories that just take off and mm-hmm. take over, you know, the uh, Ebola story right. was one of those stories where um, it just not only on cable, but on broadcast, it just dominated for a, a number of weeks. And then it's gone. Right. Because the great scare that people felt was not uh, borne out by uh, the facts. And, and yet, it, how, how, how much of, does that mentality rule? Well, I think I, I say there are a couple things that have impacted the news right now. There's social media and technology, which has just sped everything up. Uh, and that's not just for the better or the worse. You know, it's I, I hate to be it's so easy to say it's terrible, right? I think there are real advantages to it. It's brought in many more voices. It makes it possible to disseminate information without being part of a massive media structure. And that's really important. Um, and I think that's actually going to help us change so that we can have a, a more complex, nuanced uh, news in, in our future. Uh, but I do think that there are the way it's impacted traditional media has been not great. Uh, You know, we're in such a race with everyone else and we have to put everything on Twitter as quickly as possible to be part of the conversation. You just rush things out and accuracy kind of becomes, can become less important. You can think, well, I can update it later if there's something wrong. So that's a challenge. 
another challenge is competition. There- it is a challenge because these things then are out there and they can feed on themselves and negative nar- uh, sort of false narratives can take root because in the in the rush to get things on the air they get reported and it's hard to pull them back. I I agree. I think it's incredibly challenging. I am less concerned about the mini tempest in the teapot and these than the overall orientation on buzz and conflict and drama and this whole idea of reality news where we pre-digest information, break it down so it's so simple that you don't really have to work to understand it. And we ne- and we're so resistant to go into the gray areas. And it's my experience that viewers want that gray stuff. You just have to tell it in a way that's compelling. You need person, you need characters, you need good storytelling. Uh, and that takes time and that takes a commitment of resources. And, you know, people used to say to me, you know, oh, it's hard to get into these stories or foreign stories aren't interesting. But look at the success of Vice. Look at the success of documentaries on Netflix. This demonstrates that people want information. They'll sit with it for a long time. They'll take in complex ideas if it's told to them well. It's true that you hear in the in, in the industry, you did hear, you know, people don't want to spend a lot of time. You know, you, it came up uh, relative to the Sunday shows because Tim Russert used to, even in that election that you covered and that I worked in 2007, 2008, when I was writing my book, I went back and read the transcripts of Meet the Press when Obama was on Meet the Press. Yeah. It would be an hour-long interview That's on amazing. Sunday television, which and, and very probing. Uh, but now you hear, well, that, you know, there's no room for that. Oh, no, sound bites have to be 20 seconds. Interviews have to be seven minutes or shorter. It has to fit in one block. Uh, You know, you have to take an entire story. I used to call them news haikus, that I'd have to tell the whole story of what happened at the White House today in a minute 15. Uh, Fortunately, Haikus you can use. (laughs) I like it. We should patent that. Yes. Um, but, uh, but there is this market now. I mean, CNN now has basically gone in the evenings to documentaries on mm-hmm. several evenings a week, and they've done very well with it. So is there a move back to something uh, more um, long form, more I, probing? I think that there is an appetite for long form, and I think there's also an appetite for more nuanced news. I think that, you know, the fact that Netflix is now interested in getting into the news business and that some of these other new platforms are exploring it uh, suggests that maybe we're going to find a new way of bringing out these stories that we haven't been getting from our traditional outlets. I mean, you, it's it, we're not quite there yet because our iPhones can't download, I think, enough material fast enough. But video is the fastest growing area in in that market. Uh, and I'm sort of optimistic that these companies are investing in this direction. Uh, hopefully we'll get some new voices out there. In the Just in the couple of minutes we have here, let me um, ask you about your your novel and what you want to, if anything, I mean, this is as good a place as any to give people a little tease, a little preview, something to look forward to. Great. Uh, Sure. Uh, I haven't talked about it yet. So let's see how I do with the pitch. Uh, It's about a young reporter who's always wanted to cover the White House. And she finally gets a shot at it just as the first... Where do you get this stuff? I know. It's just pure... Yeah. (laughs) Uh, She finally gets a shot at it as the first lady disappears, vanishes. 
and the press becomes totally consumed with figuring out where the first lady is. Meanwhile, inside the White House, another story is developing. Ah, that's great. And when when can we expect uh, to see? Have this? you been talking to my agent? Uh, <laughs> I do have a series of questions I was asked to ask you. It's, it turns out plot is very hard to do. Uh-huh. You can't just sit down and it flow and it just develops itself. Uh, so I've learned from all these screenwriters, you have to have all these cards and storyboards. You should see my office at home. It's like a maze. Huh. So uh, hopefully in the next few, uh, hopefully by the end of the year, it will be written. Good. So for the holidays, uh, 2016. Good. Look at bookstores <laughs> for Jessica's uh, uh, novel. Thank you Listen, for the plug, David. It's, uh, first of all, appreciate you being a fellow at the IOP. You're imparting a lot of really important stuff for our young people here but uh, great always great to sit with you i love being here and thank you for having me it's a pleasure thank you for listening to the axe files for more podcasts like this subscribe to the axe files on itunes and for more programming from the university of chicago institute of politics visit politics.uchicago.edu